Planet Pod, essential listening for everyone who cares about the planet. Welcome to Planet Pod with me, Amanda Carpenter. Today we are broadcasting not from our lovely little studio in the old biscuit factory in Bermondsey, but via Skype as we, like our guests, are obeying government guidelines to socially distance and work from home whenever possible. So we're all scattered at our desks across the country. Um, I'm delighted to welcome my guest today, Dr. AJ Gambier, a Senior Research Fellow and Alisa Gilbert, Director of Translation, both from the Grantham Institute of Climate Change at Imperial College, who've joined us to talk about COVID-19 and the climate. So, AJ and Elisa, welcome to Planet Pod and thanks for joining us. Thanks, Amanda. Hi. Naturally, as we're doing this via Skype, the quality won't be quite as good as it normally is. So, Planet Pod listeners, please bear with us. But we felt it was incredibly important to do what we could to contribute to the current debate about COVID, but also to reassure people um, that the climate change issues and our concern about the climate and the planet have not gone away. They've been knocked off the news agendas, but that doesn't mean that the rest of us are still not worrying about them and doing what we can to address the issues that we know we have to address. So in these incredibly troubling and worrying times, um, with the pandemic now having reached every country in the world and touched everybody's lives, um, I think it's really important that we see what the context for the climate emergency is within the um, coronavirus debate. I'm really glad we call it COVID-19 because I find that much easier to pronounce. So. Um, I'm delighted that we have colleagues from, from Grantham with us. We've done a number of podcasts with the Grantham Institute and they've always been thoughtful, insightful, demanding intellectually and hugely informative. So thank you both for coming. Um, and obviously Imperial have been at the forefront of the news around COVID-19 and the work that's come out of the MRC Centre for Global Infectious Disease Analysis and other colleagues in the, in the college and in the university. So I wonder, could I start perhaps, AJ, by asking you, can you maybe give us a bit of context about uh, COVID-19 and perhaps what do we know so far um, and perhaps frame the debate for us in that way? Yeah, sure. I'm happy to offer some thoughts on that. But big caveat is that I'm not an epidemiologist. I'm a energy system analyst and I think about the way that we can get to a low carbon economy. So in some senses, I'm only as informed as those people that have also been feverishly, and that's probably the wrong word to use, reading the news um, <laughs> over the last few weeks. And um, it seems as though things are changing very rapidly on a daily basis and that we've gone from uh, if you like, our old normal of interacting um, socially and working in offices, uh, in the UK at least, to now a series of actions from the government which have quite fundamentally changed the ways that most of us are going about our every, everyday lives. Um, in the UK, the, 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 the schools are still running and um, it remains to be seen whether schools will now be... Um, School attendance will now be postponed, um, which there have been some reports could could happen from the end of this week. Uh, that would obviously be a, a, an even more sort of significant change compared to what we've already seen. So very sort of briefly, my understanding of the situation is that um, we're now in a sort of community transmission um, phase of COVID-19. And that means that, you know, unlike some countries, which are still at a phase whereby the new cases of the um, virus transmission are coming in from um, international travel and people coming in from countries where that where which have a, a greater sort of uh, occurrence of, of, of the, the, the disease 
transmitting that into those countries, we're, we're now sort of in a situation where we're transmitting this amongst ourselves. Um, and so the, that process is now continuing. Um, and there are uh, still an increasing number of cases being recorded every day. Um, the last I read, there was, an, uh, I think, an estimate of approximately 50 to 60,000 cases um, in the UK estimated based on the number that have been reported. Um, and so we're in a situation where the government has had to take some pretty di difficult decisions about um, changing uh, our our usual economic activities um, and social activities. So I'd say that that's a sort of um, snapshot of where we are. And I think I share with a number of people a sort of sense of just starting to come to terms with that in terms of homeworking, uh, in terms of perhaps preparing for my children to be at home with me and my wife from next week and seeing how I can manage work and um, homeschooling and life and so forth from that perspective. There's plenty more I could say on that, but um, yeah, those are some initial thoughts of where we are in this very unprecedented and fast-changing situation. Well, maybe to touch upon something that you said in the introduction, Amanda, um, you pointed out that there's been some great research done by our colleagues at our own institution, and that leads us, at least me, to reflect quite a bit on our role as people who bring expert information through to the public and hopefully to be acted upon by decision makers. It's a source of pride, even though these are people in teams that I don't know at Imperial, that it's the name of our institution being used um, behind these decision making. But it's also, you know, part of what we know uh, is this, this process of taking the knowledge that we have in academia, doing modeling work like the stuff that AJ does, and then trying to present it and share it to these policymakers who have to balance some really difficult decisions some really different difficult priorities and then and then make decisions about what they are going to ask the public to do and in some cases tell the public to do. Yeah, I think that's a very interesting point that you made because we've had a lot in the UK, haven't we, over the last, you know, 12 months and beyond perhaps around we no longer need experts. We no longer need to listen to people who have expertise in areas. We're all we're all experts now. And actually, the the we've come full circle. And now expertise and um, insight of the kind that your colleagues at Imperial bring is absolutely vital to that decision making process. And I think added to that too is that that idea of modelling as being a really valid way to to predict not just. The, the spread of a pandemic, as we're talking about now, but also to predict other activities such as the changes in the climate. It's really key that we use the expertise that, that you have um, and that we make sensible decisions and sensible predictions and sensible policies based on those. And I know that's your particular area of work, Alyssa, because you are obviously, that's what you do. You take some of those, those areas of expertise and help inform policymaking. Um, but in the wider context, there's probably some lessons we could learn, isn't there, about the, the modelling and the use of modelling and predictions uh, that are coming out from, from, you know, the global infectious disease team and the uh, replicable models that are coming out or similar model modeling techniques that are coming out of, of the Institute to look at what's happening around climate change. So, um, so I think that, you know, that perhaps that need to put experts back at the center of decision making has, has never been more, more poignant, more, more appropriate. Yeah, I think, and I think it's a combination of not just the experts and the expertise, but the information. Um, and mm. the ways of thinking about about problems, uh, there's there's quite a lot of public interest in seeing that information, the raw data, and trying to understand it um, and drawing conclusions themselves. And I think that's really positive. I, I feel like in the past few years, there's been quite a bit of quite unfair dismissal of the willingness of of 
of the general public and the general interested public in really engaging with fact and um, and use of data and knowledge. And I think we're seeing that happen in a really, really difficult situation and circumstance right now. But we're really seeing that that natural curiosity of humans and interest in, in data. Yeah, I think we need data, don't we? We need informed decisions. And, and as individuals, even if we're not making um, big decisions, we're only making small decisions about our lives and our immediate family, it really helps us to have a sense of what the facts are. And, and you, AJ, you quoted that, that, that figure of perhaps 50 to 60,000 cases. And am I right in thinking that that's, that's an estimate based on, you know, multiplying the number of, um, of reported um, deaths, I think it is, I think I heard this, by about a thousand to give us a sense of where the case cases are coming from. Is that is that how we got to that figure? In all honesty, I'm not sure. I, I do remember reading one of the, um, the the government advisors saying that look, a, a rule of thumb is is about sort of a, a death in every thousand cases. And it, it uh, when when I was reading this yesterday evening, I think at that point there were just over 70 uh, deaths in the UK, which is obviously extremely um, upsetting and regrettable, but but um, but that was sort of broadly speaking consistent with the ratio of one to a thousand that the um, mm-hmm. government advisor was talking about. Uh, so yeah, there's 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 a kind of way of understanding the spread of the disease in other countries and the the fatality rate there. Um, the, the, the the infection rate there and then sort of fitting that to what's happening in the UK and other countries to get a sense of what's really going on behind the reported cases numbers, which, as I think we're coming to terms with, are only a very small proportion of the actual um, uh, numbers that are infected at the moment. And while that's, I mean, horrendous for those families who've lost loved ones, it's, it's awful um, because every single death is a death that we would have wanted to prevent. There is, I guess, a degree of reassurance that that, that percentage is, is very low. Um, and one in a thousand is, is you know, uh, well, we don't even want a single death. One in a thousand is perhaps a slightly more reassuring than, um, figure than perhaps 10 in a thousand would be. So, so I think having, going back to your point, Alyssa, I think actually having some real data that people can understand and relate to and some facts is, is vital. I mean, just in a wider context, when we talk about... Um, perhaps some of the modelling that's been going on around climate change and the predictions that we've been making for, for increasing temperatures and the trajectory we're on to, to surpass 1.5, probably to get to 2%, some experts say 4% of, of global warming, global heating. Um, what are the parallels in the work that you do, AJ, around modelling and data prediction and forecasting that you might be able to, to draw out for us? If there are any, there may not be any parallels at all. I may just be making a massive assumption there. I mean, I think there are lots of um, there are there are lots of similarities between the sort of work that I and colleagues of mine around the world do, which is around long range forecasting of how our economies, energy systems, and agricultural and land systems, all of which emit greenhouse gases, might develop in the future, um, and the sort of perhaps shorter term modelling, the epidemiological modelling that we're seeing. The, the, the great similarity, of course, is that they are models, they are abstractions of reality, but they hopefully capture enough important aspects of reality that they can provide us with some useful indicators of how the world might develop in certain scenarios. Um, we aren't really predictors of the future. We can't be because the future remains unknown, despite our best efforts. And yep. I guess we've had this huge reminder of that 
um, over the last few days and weeks. You know, none of us were expecting this um, or predicted this. But um, what we can do is use models um, and put the sort of best assumptions that we can into those models uh, and make sure that those models represent the essential elements of reality um, to, to get what we hope is useful information and useful scenarios out. And, um, you know, the really impressive and um, astonishing, really, paper um, produced by Neil Ferguson uh, at Imperial College and, and his colleagues, which has been instrumental, I think, in informing government thinking about the spread of coronavirus, is ultimately a set of scenarios of what could happen in different circumstances. So another real similarity between the kind of modelling I do and, and that kind of modelling is the role of scenarios and uncertainty. We don't claim to know what the future holds, but what we can do is set out a reasonable set of assumptions um, in a reasonable set of scenarios and say, if this happened, then that would happen based on the modelling we do. And I think that, I hope really that the that the unfolding events that we're seeing at the moment will help a number of people who aren't really schooled in these things to understand the role of analysis, um, really building on what you and Elisa were saying not too long ago. You know, experts and science and modelling is back on the agenda, and that's really great to see. But that doesn't mean that we completely reduce uncertainty. You know, the, the future does remain uncertain, and what we can do is inform what could happen in different circumstances. And hopefully that is very, very useful information for policymakers, um, medical experts, um, other stakeholders that need to make decisions to make more informed and hopefully more resilient decisions about the future. Yeah, I mean, I think just just building on that, there's a dimension of both the long term and the short term aspect of that kind of decision making for resilience. So AJ quite rightly compared the kind of modeling that he and others do on climate to the kind of modeling that we see coming out right now about the, uh, the, the COVID-19 situation right now. But I think we should also recognize that there's been very good modeling of pandemics and different pandemic scenarios already in the past that has led to our government and others having plans for the option, or not the option, but the, the situation that we have now in broad terms. And I think that's also an important parallel with the kind of work that's done on climate change modeling and impact modeling, because that really is a set of potential scenarios uh, that allow us to put a plan and um, an infrastructure, both hard and soft infrastructure, into place to, to plan for change. And it's because some of that was in place that, that some of the decisions that are being made now, I suspect, I, I don't know that, but I suspect, are being able to, to mobilize certain certain. Uh, sort of public services and decisions. Um, and I think this is how we have to think about climate change adaptation and resilience as well. We have to remember that these are not predictions. They're what we have in terms of impacts is projections and scenarios. And we should use those to put into place, even if it's just a low level um, framework and infrastructure for resilience. Yeah, so we're not really starting from a completely, you know, a, a, a baseline of zero, are we? We've already got a lot of that planning and scenario planning and presumably in some cases there's been quite a lot of um you know informal testing or or perhaps even you know enacting of various plans i know there are all sorts of emergency plans that sit within the nhs which are constantly revised and tested and and modeled practically and in theory so it's not as if we're starting from a completely you know 
neutral base we've got quite a lot of information already but but i think that's that fascinated by what you said in terms of actually drawing some of those les lessons around resilience and understanding but AJ I just wanted to go back because you've written a fascinating blog in which you refer to black elephants and their enigmatic cousins black swans can you just tell us what you mean by that because that's to do with our those famous known unknowns and unknown unknowns isn't it which are, must be absolutely vital when it comes to thinking about um, future scenarios or predictions around climate change just as they are around um, managing pandemics. Yeah, it's a very interesting set of considerations to to be thinking about at the moment. And it's something I'm relatively new to, actually. I've been, uh, for the past several years, using energy system models to simulate the way that the world economy and energy system, by that I mean the transport system, the system that heats and lights our homes, the system that provides power to industrial manufacturing facilities, all of that really, which underlies the running of, of our economy, I've been simulating how that can transition from a very carbon intensive present system to a very low or even zero carbon future and what the potential technological, uh, social, behavioral and, and economic implications of that are. Um, and, you know, that's something which has tended in, in the community that I work in to be done using central or best guess uh, scenarios or assumptions um, and it's really quite recently within the last 18 months to a year that I've started thinking about um, outlier scenarios or extremes or those things that we don't tend to think about happening in the future um, either because they're sort of too distasteful to contemplate even though the possibility of them is always sort of there in the background. You know, they're almost like the elephant in the room, and hence the mm -hmm. phrase black elephant, um, or because we just simply don't know how to deal with them. And so that is something that we we know could happen, but we don't really know how it would manifest itself. We don't want to think about that. And that's a black elephant or a, a known unknown. And so I started thinking about, well, you know, what, what are the known unknowns in the climate and energy sphere? And of course, probably the biggest um, group of those is things like climate tipping points, which could be mm -hmm. very game changing. Um, but then also sort of big social changes. I think that, you know, something like the emergence of Extinction Rebellion and Greta Thunberg are, in retrospect, arguably known unknowns. We knew that there was a possibility that something game changing like that could come along, but we didn't perhaps um, foresee quite how uh, significant it could be. And then, of course, as you said, you've got this even more um, difficult to deal with um, uh, category of unknowns called unknown unknowns. And those are the black swans, the things that, you know, we didn't even realize were factors that could really fundamentally impact our system. Many people think about the, the great financial crisis of just over 10 years ago being a black swan event in terms of this sort of um, you know, the, the different factors that the, the mortgage defaults um, that, that that led to to debt defaults and the sort of slow credit crunch that followed and the recession that followed that. So we have these sort of fascinating occurrences and we sort of feel confident that we are going to see surprises and shocks, be they pleasant or unpleasant through time. Uh, and we need to sort of think harder about whether we can use a, a broad range of techniques to try and imagine a rich um, 
palette of future possibilities you know some of those might not be very edifying they might be quite disturbing things to think about but i think it's better if our heads are out of the sand and we're thinking actively about these occurrences um, so that we can at least start to put in place some of that resilience planning that elisa was referring to a few minutes ago in your uh, scenario would the pandemic the current pandemic count as a black swan or a black elephant because presumably would... we've always known that there was going to be. I mean, I've spoken to public health officials and they've said we were overdue a pandemic. They come around every hundred years or so, you know, and when SARS emerged a few years ago, everyone said, well, this could be it. Um, and here we are almost exactly hundred years on from the end of the First World War. We had a famous Spanish influenza. So, so would that be a, a swan or would it be a, an elephant? I would argue that that is an elephant. I would argue that we are now being... <laughs> Not to sort of want to push the analogy too far, but you know where I'm going with this. We're now being trampled on by an enormous black elephant. And, um, Which uh, we knew was there, but we hadn't perhaps addressed seriously enough in terms of some of those scenario plannings or developing those resilience plans. Indeed, yeah. Okay. Can I just ask you, I know Alyssa wants to say that, can I just ask you, for those, those listeners who might not know, what would you call a climate tipping point? How would you characterise that? Well, I think a tipping point is a change that creates a sort of a, a, a cycle of further change that's, that's irreversible and takes us much more rapidly into a direction that we know we're headed gradually, but just suddenly. So, for example, um, people talk about potentially a tipping point around ice melt in a region of the world where you could okay. say that there could be a tipping point where um, a particular area of permafrost or so on starts melting and then it creates this feedback loop. Um, that really accelerates that change. And that would then, for example, in that example, that would result in a much more rapid level sea level rise than we would otherwise model or expect. Um, and you could expect there are other kinds of ideas of tipping points. People have mentioned a tipping point around, for example, something that causes a big change or even loss of the Indian monsoon for one season or perhaps permanently, or a, a, a similar cycle that would lead to a sudden loss or transfer of a large forested area. Um, and and there are lots of reasons why there's processes, for example, within a, a forest that could change it suddenly to a, a much more austere uh, and less biologically beneficial landscape. Um, but what these tipping points are aren't really well understood. And what kind of sets those cycles in motion when that could happen isn't well understood. Okay. Um, can, obviously, something that's really um, pertinent about the particular crisis that we're in is that this isn't just something that we're experiencing here on our small island in the UK. This is a global challenge and and it, it really highlights the interconnectedness of all of us, doesn't it? And yet our behaviours in response to that interconnectedness is we've shut down. We've all shut down. So we've stopped flying, we've closed borders, we've actually tried to isolate ourselves as countries from other countries. And yet perhaps there's something in there where we should be doing the reverse. Now, I understand why the shutting down has happened. Obviously, that's trying to control disease spread, as, as we said earlier. But but that seems counterintuitive when what we really need is an interconnected global response to climate change. Um, so I don't know. Did you have any thoughts about that particularly? Well, I think I feel a little bit more positive about that than you sounded <laughs> in the sense that, yes, okay. of course, we people have shut down 
certain certain connections to stop the spread of the virus, obviously. Um, but we have seen, and I hope will continue more strongly, is an interconnectedness of finding a solution and working together to share information. There's a collective, what it appears to me anyway, a collective effort to develop a vaccine, to understand the virus, to understand also what mitigation approaches work and don't work, and to share those experiences, both at the level of experts, but it seems to me also at the level of governments, there was certainly, I think, some government to government sharing from China to other parts of the world of their experience, and now from Italy to others and vice versa. Um, and so in terms of solution finding, there is a sense that the global stage is playing a role. That doesn't mean that we aren't seeing some tricky geopolitics as well, of course. Yeah. We know that we're in quite a tricky time geopolitically in terms of international cooperation, and that's playing a part in the response to this pandemic as well. But if there's anything that's gonna shake that up and say we have to have some international cooperation, it's this kind of event. And so I do think we're seeing some of that, and I hope that leads us to be able to build on that in, in future activity, which isn't just limited, obviously, to climate change. Some of that will be also recovering from the impacts of the pandemic when it passes. Yeah, absolutely. Adrian, I mean, are there opportunities in the work that you've been doing? Because, I mean, as you say, you look at, um, you know, technologies and particularly the transition to low carbon and some of the things that we've already talked about in some of the um, podcasts that we've had with, with Grantham. Um, can you see some positives or some opportunities coming out of what's happening to the way people are behaving and the way we're using energy and the way that we're perhaps not using other energies, so we're not flying, for example, that might accelerate some of those transitions to a lower carbon economy? I mean, I hope so. And a number of, a number of people have made the point that we are going to discover um, quite rapidly how to make homeworking and video conferencing and remote meetings um, work, uh, whether we like it or not. And if that becomes a set of behaviours which in some ways are beneficial to people in terms of them not being crowded on commuter trains um, or spending more time at home with, let's hope eventually, friends, um, but family, um, and not spending so so long sort of away getting to and from work, then those could be interesting and beneficial um, uh, behaviours and actions that we could look at ways of embedding for the long term, which would be extremely significant and impactful in terms of reducing emissions, reducing local air pollution, um, and, and hopefully improving the quality of people's lives. So that's clearly an example um, of how uh, one particular action that has been forced upon us in the short term could uh, become a longer term embedded action that we all benefit from. But you know, I don't think um, it, it, I don't think we should ignore the significant difficulties that a sort of lack of physical um, interaction across nations could bring us as well, and the potential sort of um, slowdown in uh, the deployment of low carbon technologies. I've been, for example, reading about how the solar industry with its quite international supply chains is really suffering at the moment um, mm. from the shutdown of borders and the 
you know, inevitable slowdown in uh, industrial manufacturing. We know that China has been an enormous driver of the cost reduction in photovoltaic modules and cells, for example. So there will be opportunities and challenges. Um, I think that very creative people and very imaginative people are going to be thinking about all sorts of innovative ways in which we can capitalise on some of the behaviours that we've already seen and will no doubt be seeing develop over the coming weeks and months um, to help us to tackle the climate change challenge in a more cost-effective and more cooperative way. I think it will drive the the localism agenda quite a bit, as won't won't it? Because if we can perhaps reconnect individuals with their communities in local ways, and some of those personal behaviour changes and social changes that have been happening that we've been hearing about. I mean, you know, the famous one is obviously people singing from their balconies in Italy. That could only happen, I suspect, in Italy, um, primarily because a lot of people in the UK don't have balconies and I'm not sure about our singing, but we do already. We've just heard about an online (laughs) choir and, you know, the fact that people are looking out for their neighbours. But we have to remember that actually a lot of our community feel quite isolated already and the connection that they have by going into a place of work might be the only <clears throat> social human contact that they get on a regular basis. So so while homeworking might be really beneficial for lots of individuals, um, I think there's also that need to balance, isn't there, make sure that we're still connected into our communities. So, so perhaps there's a demand for us to replicate some of that community connection at a more local level and reconnect with our neighbours and, and the people in our streets and our local suppliers in terms of food and and, and other you know other necessities really so i think that there's a like all of these conversations there's a there's a positive and a negative isn't there to all of the outcomes that we're experiencing i mean it's really just a huge social experiment by accident <laughs> really and honestly I, I kind of see this this local community dimension definitely developing there's really a lot of positive activity i live in london it's a big city we've got in my local area and the whole borough actually a whole load of already community groups set up on WhatsApp to offer help to people who are self-isolating and need help with deliveries and and identifying people who are vulnerable and so on. And I think that this creates a kind of lasting infrastructure that I think has, has been eroding over time. There's a lot of pockets of community activity in, in our city, but this kind of immediate need to look out for each other, I think is it, it's really heartwarming. And I think that there's opportunity for there to be some legacy gain from that. Yeah. And I think perhaps we're building some resilience. And I know resilience is something that you're particularly interested in, AJ, but maybe we're building resilience as communities in a way that we have perhaps did have perhaps in the past and that we've lost sight of slightly. So actually our ability as a community to respond to things and to support one another and also to find changes, you know, change behaviours, but also solutions at a a local or even, you know, sort of multi-local level. Um, That might be one of the benefits that comes out of this. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I think sometimes you need very, very um, it's shocking things to happen to sort of get, get us all to wake wake up or, or, or get out of our, our kind of rat race and think about what we're doing for each other and, and what we're doing over the, the long term. And maybe if we're lucky, this is um, a situation which we can recover from for the most part successfully and is a set of lessons that we will be able to carry with us um, for a long time to come. I, I am concerned slightly about the um, some of the economics um, and some of the economic solutions that have been put forward. I mean, while I think it's you know incredibly important that that we devote a lot of our um, you know national wealth to making sure that people are not suffering financially, and we're picking up the wage bill for small businesses and. 
I'm concerned that one of the immediate reactions of the government was to say that they would instantly attempt to bail out the airlines and the airports. And while we know that that's obviously a huge source of employment, there are a lot of people involved in that industry, you know, is this an opportunity to actually say, can we rethink some of these really heavy carbon polluting um, ways of, of working and ways of traveling? So, you know, how do you feel about the bailing out of the airlines? I mean, obviously, we don't want people to to lose their jobs and be without income. But is this an opportunity to maybe rethink some of that a bit? I think that, that the government just has no bandwidth to use that kind of creative thinking right now, whether or not it's appropriate. You know, I think there's so much pressure to uh, to figure out how to support the economy at all different levels and such demand as we slow things down to think about everything, be that from theatres to how you protect people from their rent uh, and how you maintain salaries going, and then the implications of of these larger businesses, be be they airlines or another kind of businesses, you know, how how do how do we support them during this period of basically zero demand? Yeah. Um. And we 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 know that zero demand for any of these things, even in the climate change transition scenario, you know, isn't isn't part of what we foresee as a long term plan. So I I think it's very difficult to I mean. I wouldn't criticize the government right now for find you know not being right there, being having a creative plan for a bailout package that that supports people whilst at the same time moving us more rapidly to a transition. And I, I think one of the one of the reasons for that too is that we know that you know we need a sustainable change to be able to tackle climate change. What we're experiencing right now is absolutely not sustainable. It's yeah. drastic and it's done. It's being done as emergency measures for very, very good reason to keep as many people as healthy and well in our country and internationally as possible. We can't we can't build on that in in a in a in a knee-jerk way and expect that to be sustainable as well. I you know I, I'm not a business person and I'm not equipped to say whether a bailout package for the airlines was the right approach or the wrong approach now. But I think we can't expect um, nor do I think we should use this moment for an immediate turnaround. I think it's the the years that follow when we start to think about how do we recover from this towards the end of the year, I think, that that something more creative could be possible. Yeah, yeah. I'd, I'd just like to add to that, really, um, and and reflect a little bit on the, the, the stimulus packages that we saw a decade ago in the wake of the, the global financial crisis. Um, a lot has happened in the last decade. And whilst it may have been arguable 10 years ago, and really, in my view, it wasn't to, to create stimulus packages, which were not sort of overtly green fiscal stimulus packages. I think the longer term stimulus that Elisa was alluding to, you know, not the sort of emergency measures that may be coming in in the next few weeks or months, but when there's been a little bit of time to sort of sit and think in a bit more detail, the stimulus packages that we see from governments across the world, I think there's no excuse for those um, to not be um, explicitly sustainable development stimulus packages. And I think that's when the really um, hard thinking needs to be done, or, or in preparation for that, the hard thinking needs to be done about how we can avoid those stimuluses locking in high carbon, unsustainable economic behaviours and development patterns for the future. Um, so I, for one, am very, very keen to be involved in and, and planning to be involved in thinking about how we can create genuinely green, sustainable stimulus packages to help lift us out of this um, situation that we're going into at the moment.
I think your um your optimism and um, positivity must be catching because I have to say that that's a you know a terrible as this feels at the moment you know I can see glimmers of hope and opportunity um, from what you've both just said in terms of how we could use this as as a as a as a you know real boost to thinking differently about both our economy and our energy production and the way that we live our lives so 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 while nothing will negate the the pain of the, the pandemic at least we have an opportunity to behave differently moving forward and i think the idea that we could perhaps use this as a, a way of looking at doing things differently and those those stimuluses you've just been talking about aj that's that's a really positive message to be able to <clears throat> to share with planet pod listeners um i'd love to have you both back in maybe a few weeks time um to see where we've got to and to see how things have changed uh, thank you so much for joining planet pod today it's been a fascinating conversation um i'd say to our listeners keep listening if you're at home or if you're at sneaking out very early morning for a run um tune into planet pod you can get in contact with us via the website theplanetpod.com or you can follow us on social media so um thank you both so much um for sharing your insights and understanding and um, to all our listeners and our guests, stay safe and stay well. Thanks for Thank having us. Thank you. Thanks, Linda. Planet Pod is brought to you by Akil Management. My thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and our researcher, Beth Palmer. And to you, our listeners. Without you, we'd be very lonely. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at planet underscore pod or visit our website. Please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you with ideas for future programmes. Thanks for listening.